Hello and welcome to Based on a True Story. On today's episode, we're going to learn more about the movie The Imitation Game. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, didn't you already cover this? And yes, The Imitation Game was one of the very first movies we covered here on the podcast back in 2016, episode number three, in fact. Since then, I've gotten a lot of feedback from listeners about that episode. Some of it was good, some of it, well, you know how internet commentators can be. The tricky part is a lot of that feedback would contradict each other, so it was hard to know what was right. With that in mind, who better to help us separate fact from fiction than Mark Cotton, the producer of the official Bletchley Park podcast. In case you're not aware of what Bletchley Park is, that is the real place that's depicted in the movie. It's where the real Alan Turing and plenty of other codebreakers worked to break the German Enigma code during World War II. For years, Mark has worked closely with the team at Bletchley Park to put together a fantastic podcast, and he was kind enough to not only come on this show to help us separate fact from fiction in The Imitation Game itself, but he also took the time to review that original episode of Based on a True Story, episode number three, and point out some mistakes that I made, as well as make some clarifications. We'll tackle those corrections at the end of this episode, but in case you haven't heard that original episode, let's go through the movie itself first. Actually, Hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm a little too excited about today's chat and almost forgot. Before we get Mark on the line, we need to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. Now, if you're a longtime listener, you already know how this works, but if you're new to the show, welcome. Here is how this little game works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. The entire day's work was lost as soon as the clock struck midnight. Number two, the bomb machines that Alan Turing helped build at Bletchley Park were not computers. Number three, possessing the Enigma machine itself was not as important as the codebooks. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode— And then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to get Mark on the line to chat about the historical accuracy of the movie, The Imitation Game. We'll get into some of the specifics of the movie and how it compares to history. But before we do that, just overall... What did you think about The Imitation Game? At the time, we kind of all said the same thing because there were obviously a lot of complaints from people. Bletchley is this kind of place that it does tend to really make people passionate about it. So they would say, well, that bit's not right, that bit's not right, that's not right. And we always said the same thing, which was it's not a documentary. What it is is a really good wartime thriller. And if you put aside what you know, the actual historical facts, then just focus on that, then it's brilliant. Because what it did was bring so many people to Bletchley Park. And, you know, it made it world famous. For us, it was a win-win because you get the people to come to Bletchley and we tell them the real story. But it's getting that hook first. And that's what that film did. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't pay for that kind of publicity, really. 
Bletchley Park is a charity. It's funded by donations. It has no funding from government. You know, so the life and soul of the place is people arriving. You know, it's footfall, basically. That makes perfect sense that that would lead a lot of people into people that never heard of Bletchley Park before be interested to see the real story. So we've recently got a, a new research officer called Tom. So when we do our history episodes, our historian normally does them. And now Tom started, we're getting him to do some. And I sort of sat him down at the start and I said, you know, because he's mid-twenties, he's basically, you know, he's just got his doctorate. And I was trying to explain to him that what you've got to remember is that people who come and listen to our show, for a start, they could be anyone from someone who's absolutely fascinated by World War II, you know, or someone who's just interested in code-breaking, all the way through to someone who's just watched The Imitation Game and loves Benedict Cumberbatch. So they've come to have a listen to the podcast. And you've got to cater for everyone. And that's how we do our storytelling in the museum and, you know, in the podcast. It's to cater to everyone at all levels. That makes sense. And your mention of Benedict Cumberbatch, I want to jump into some of the details. So the first that we see Benedict Cumberbatch's version of Alan Turing arrive at Bletchley Park, it's near the end of 1939. War with Germany has just been declared. And at this point, at least according to the movie, Turing is 27 years old. and He doesn't really seem to be too thrilled with working for the government. But he enjoys solving puzzles, and the German Enigma is the greatest encryption device ever, the ultimate puzzle for him. Now, according to the movie, Turing joins five others as they begin the task of cracking the Enigma code. Can you explain how Turing made his way to Bletchley Park, and how did the movie depict his arrival? Did they do a pretty good job of depicting his arrival to Bletchley as part of a team tasked with breaking the code? Let me read you one thing. So this is from a, a wartime document or, or pre-war document. So this is a list of pre-war training courses. So people who were marked out as possible code breakers. So between the 3rd of January and the 6th of January, 1939, there was a course, and it's just an introduction course to code breaking, you know, code breaking 101 sort of thing. And on that course, you've got the following people. Charlesworth, Charvlet, Driver, Hyam, Last, Lucas, Roberts, Turing, Wilkinson. You notice one of the names in there. Yeah. So in January 1939, Alan had already been marked out as being a potential codebreaker and had already sat a course as an introduction for code breaking. Now, what he did between January 39 and September 39 is he went back to Cambridge, but he carried on actually working on the Enigma problem, as they were calling it then. And he was doing this for the, the chief code breaker at Bletchley at the time was a chap called Dilly Knox, who'd actually been a World War I code breaker. So he'd been involved with, you'll have heard of the Zimmerman telegram that basically brought the US into the First World War. So Dilly Knox had been one of the people who'd helped to break that. He was working for Dilly Knox in Cambridge for nothing for the next eight months before the war started. So the film sort of saying that he was reluctant to go or, you know, he was just going because it was a bit of a puzzle is not really true. 
if you go back to World War One, code breaking in those days, your classic code breaker is either someone who studied the classics, so like Greek or Egyptian or something or Roman, and they're used to dealing with ancient scrolls and texts and things, or linguists, just for the you know language basically, and they were the best people for code breaking because in those days it was. It was mainly substitutions or it was code books where, you know, a number would just signify a certain word. Once you get to Enigma, Commander Denniston, who was the head of GCNCS, Denniston really early on realised, right, we need mathematicians for this, really, because this is a machine. And how do you break a machine? You break a machine through mathematics. So he'd been looking for what they called the professor types for quite a while. And they had people at Oxford and Cambridge and, and the other leading universities who were basically professors there who were looking for their brightest pupils. And they were tipping the wink to Deniston and then they'd either be invited down to London for a little chat and a meal and, and say, well, would you like to work for the government? Oh, oh, all right then. I mean, one of the other courses, I read out that course to you, there was, another, there was four courses in the first three months of 39. Now, the third one, which was in March, there were another 11 people on there. One of the names on there is Tolkien, as in Lord of the Rings. Now, just because people sat these courses didn't mean they actually went to Bletchley. Some of them actually turned them down. Some said, all right, yeah, uh, no, I think I'd rather stay doing what I'm doing. And Tolkien was one of those. Tolkien decided to stay on at university, or I think he was in Oxford at the time, and write Lord of the Rings. Other people said, oh, I've only got a year left on my degree. Can I finish my degree first or my paper I'm working on? Um, So out of that, there was something like 94 people who actually sat these courses and were pre-war, known as the secondary list, I think. So between World War I and Second World War, GCNCS had a certain amount of staff, but obviously they're not at war. You know, they don't have huge staff. They couldn't actually take these people on until war was declared and actually pay them. So they were all basically just waiting for the war to start and then they'd all start turning up. And that's how they turned up. So we don't actually have a date that Alan turned up at at Bletchley. We know he turned up in September 1939. We think it was about the second week. But, you know, that was just a case of they started dropping in in dribs and drabs. But by October that year, or even by, you know, before the end of September, out of the 94 who'd sat the courses, something in the high 40s were actually going to come to Bletchley. Either they'd been accepted or, you know, the ones that hadn't turned Bletchley down. So by the time we get to the end of September, early October 1939, there's 150-odd staff at Bletchley Park. Once Turing is at Bletchley, at least as far as the movie is concerned, we start to learn a little bit more about the code, the Enigma code that he's trying to break. Now, at the heart of it, as the way the movie explains it, and then I'll have you explain the way it really was, is there was an encryption machine, and then the Germans changed the settings on the machine every night at midnight. So according to the movie, that means you have to break the code sift through hundreds of millions of possible combinations and do it in a single day before the settings change and all those combinations change and you lose everything that you were working on. Can you give us a little more information on the challenge that the code breakers were up against and how German Enigma code worked? What a lot of people don't know is that 
the Enigma machine was originally invented as a, a commercial device in the 1920s, and it was designed to be used by banks so they could have secure... Um, it's like, you know, online banking in a way, you know, the earliest version. Now, GCNCS actually bought two copies of that machine in the 1920s. So the whole myth about us never having an Enigma machine was kind of blown out of the water that we, we'd had one for like 20 years before the war started, <laughs> bizarrely. But um, that machine changed so much. At some point, the German authorities decide, do you know what, I think we could use this machine, in which case we're going to stop selling it commercially. And that's when they started making changes. So if we jump forward to World War II, by the time you get to World War II, you've got a, a machine that's basically the same machine that it's been for 20 years, but in the same breath, it's radically different. With the early three-rotor machine, what you get is there aren't just three rotors, there's actually five rotors, and they're all numbered. So every day at midnight, your Enigma operator gets his big sheet out, and on that sheet it tells him, a bunch of things how to set up his machine. So the first thing it says is, right, out of the five rotors, use these three. And he takes those three and then it tells him which order to put them in the machine, so he puts those in. Now on the side of the rotor, there's a little clip, and that can be in one of 26 positions, and that's another level of security, and that tells him which position to put the clip in on each of these three rotors. So he does that. Now, one of the biggest changes they'd brought in was on the front of the board, they have something called a plug board, and it's basically paired up letters. So it didn't matter if you pressed an A, it wasn't actually going to say an A anyway, because it would say, right, we'll put this plug in, so every A becomes an E for a start. So that's another level of encryption. So they could have up to, say, a dozen of those plugs pairing up. Then he closes all the machine up, and it tells him, what to set those three rotors at to start with. So all of those things are done before he starts to send a message. And that basically meant that there were 157 million, million, million combinations. Now, on top of that, it wasn't a case of every midnight, you've got this one Enigma code to break. You know, everyone thinks it's the Enigma code. There weren't. So by the peak of, of the war, there were 60 different types of Enigma to break. So what Bletchley knew them as were keys, but we'd probably know them as networks now if you were to say that they're different networks. So each part of the German state had its own series of networks or keys. So the army, the air force, the, the foreign ministry, the Abwehr, the police the Gestapo, every part of it. And there were 60 of these. So Bletchley's biggest problem in reality, really, is which of those 60 keys do we try and break? Because the, there was no way... I mean, at its height, you had nearly 10,000 people working between Bletchley and its outstations, sort of the listening stations and the bomb stations. Even with that many people, there was never enough, enough staff to be able to break every key. So that's when real sort of background intelligence comes in because you have to decide, right, okay, we can maybe break 20 or 25 of these each day. Which are the most important 20 or 25 to us at the moment? And that was probably the biggest problem they had. 
So they would change depending on the day, which ones you would try to break? Yeah. Wow. That's <laughs> even more complex. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you have to think about those decisions that are being made as well. Someone is having to make a decision that, for example, I mean, they would always try and break the U-boat keys, obviously. But, you know, that's not just one key. You know, each flotilla, so there would be a flotilla out of Norway, there'd be a flotilla out of Denmark, there'd be different flotillas out of France. Each of those had its own key. So you're going to be breaking those because, you know, up to late 43, that was probably the most dangerous thing for Britain was the Battle of the Atlantic. I mean, that's shown in the film. You know, they do concentrate on the the war in the Atlantic, which was, you know, at one point before they broke back into Enigma, the former rotary Enigma machine, we were down to something like six weeks food in this country. And that was it. We had six weeks and we were basically going to be out of the war. Does that then mean that if you break all those keys, you don't break, I don't know, a key somewhere in Italy that might tell you that this certain German unit's going to be moving? You know, the decisions they had to make were life and death every day. And were those decisions made in Bletchley or was Bletchley essentially told these are the ones that you're going to focus on today? They were given that command from, from somewhere else. It changes over the war, I think. There's a really interesting early war incident. So when the Germans invade Norway in April 40, the naval section at at Bletchley informed the Admiralty that there's a squadron of German warships heading out and they're heading towards a British aircraft carrier. And the Admiralty basically said, yeah, of course they are. And the aircraft carrier was then sunk with basically all hands. Uh, the Admiralty kind of decided that any time this chap called Harry Hinsley, who was only a young man, uh, gave them information like this in the future, they were going to listen to him. You know, and Harry Hinsley went on to be one of the leading codebreakers at Bletchley, and, you know, and that was one of his first interactions with the Admiralty. And so it, it always depended on what you find in that world of codebreakers. They know the people that they pass their product onto as, as their customers. And it, a lot of it depends on whether your customer believes it or not. So all the way through the war, there were certain Allied commanders who absolutely relied on Enigma, all the, well, well, on all, Ultra, as the intelligence was called, all the way through the war. Some too much, in fact, you know, that just Ultra isn't always going to tell you everything. You know, the Battle of the Bulge is a prime example. So they could rely on it, which might be, not the greatest thing, but you'd also had commanders who just didn't want to believe it at all. So part of it depends on that. There would be obvious things like, you know, so while we're fighting in North Africa, obviously you're going to try and concentrate on the keys that are going to relate directly to where your armed forces are. So especially, you know, up till, I suppose you could say, late 43 with the invasion of Italy. They're basically looking at, I would have thought, mainly naval enigma and anything relating to North Africa. But in just saying that, it's not just, oh, we'll break the enigma keys that Rommel's using in the Africa Corps. What you've also got to break is the Italian codes, because the Italian Navy is the people, are the people delivering the stores. And you want to break the Luftwaffe keys for the German Air Force in Italy because they're the ones who are 
guarding the convoys as they go over. Oh, and actually, we actually need to break the German Navy U-boat flotillas in the Mediterranean as well because they'll be on patrol at the same time. So if we send out our ships to try and sink the Italian, oh, yeah, it just becomes so complicated. I, I don't know how... I mean, they must have had so many sleepless nights. And, and I've spoken to veterans who, who will kind of say that they used to wonder when they were doing their jobs, you know, have I just saved someone? Or have I just killed someone? Or have I let someone get killed? And these are really young people as well, especially the female staff. You're looking at someone who was 25 was probably classed as an old lady because they were anything from 17 and a half upwards. And a lot of the chaps were, were very young. Turing was actually quite old. You know, at 27, Turing was quite an old chap to be at Bletchley Park. <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine making those types of decisions and having to make them every single day, just knowing that it is, I mean, it is life or death. No matter what, somebody is going to pay for the decisions that you're making on what you're going to break. Yeah. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, I, I know you alluded to this earlier, so maybe you already answered it, but in the movie, we see how they recruit at Bletchley Park. And we see it as they're recruiting by putting a crossword puzzle in the newspaper. The idea here, according to the movie, is if somebody can solve the puzzle, then they will know how to contact Bletchley Park staff and they'll also have proven themselves a good candidate. Was there any reality to that? Yes, there's, there's a tiny bit of reality. I've had our historian look into this for you. Now, all we've been able to track down is one instance where this was done, and it was in 1942, and six people were recruited from it, and that's the only instance we can find of it. Now, as I said before, you know, you're looking at 
9,000 staff recruited during the, you know, the height. So six people out of 9,000 isn't a lot. <laughs> I, I, I think the way this, is, is, this has grown is I've interviewed probably, I don't know, or, or recorded something like 60 or 70 veterans over the years. And quite often what will come up is they will say something like during their interview, they were asked, do you like doing crossword puzzles? Oh, oh, yeah, I do. Or do you play chess, something like that? And I think it's grown out of that more than anything. I think because in asking that question, there are, they're trying to get an impression of the way the person's mind works. Not, you know, sit down and do this crossword. Oh, if you do it, you're coming to Bletchley Park as a codebreaker. Because, in fact, most of the people who've told me that were not what you would call a codebreaker. They were working bomb machines. They were working teleprinter machines. We still call them codebreakers because, as far as we're concerned, everyone who served there, it doesn't matter if you were Alan Turing at one end or the 14-year-old tea girl who lived locally and used to push a trolley around with the, the big tea urn on it. Every single person had their job to do, and each person had to do their job before the next one could do it. There was, it was basically a machine, a codebreaking machine, and each person was this little cog in that machine. So, you know, I think, I think that's where this has come from. But like I said, we, we, we can find evidence of one example of it, and that's it. And only six people out of thousands recruited. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pretty, it's not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the movie, though, one of the people that gets recruited in this way, and I would guess she's not one of the six, but um, I want to talk about Joan Clark because she was one of the characters in the movie there that it was – Interesting when you when you see the movie, I almost got the implication that she was as a woman working as a codebreaker. She was she was seen differently, and that you know it wasn't common to have a woman working as a codebreaker. Can you explain who she was, and and was she the only woman working as a codebreaker? No, not in, not not at all. I said earlier about these these ninety four people who were looked at being recruited pre war. So out of that ninety four figures aren't exact, but I think it was 72 were men and the rest were women. Joan was a codebreaker. She was a proper codebreaker, as Alan was, which was quite rare, but she wasn't the only one. So I mentioned Dilly Knox earlier. So Dilly Knox, as the chief codebreaker, basically had a bit of leeway with what he could do. And he basically, in his section, only had women working with him. And they were called Dilly's Girls. His attitude was that women were better codebreakers than the men. He felt the men, I think, were too competitive with each other, which could be to the detriment of the actual task. Dilly was also a, a, a bit of an amateur poet as well, so he wrote, wrote a long poem about his girls. One was called Margaret Rock, and there was another called Lever. So he writes this long poem about how there's a rock can only be moved by a lever and those women were, early on, were, were brilliant. I mean, Mavis Beatty, who worked for him, she, later in the war, breaks a message from the Italian codes. So the Italians were also using Enigma. Germans had given them. Um, and she breaks this message that basically tells her where the Italian fleet's going to be in two days' time. And that turns into the Battle of Cape Matapan. And basically, the Italian Navy after that never came out 
of port again. And we basically had near enough destroyed the Italian Navy as a fighting force. And that was down to a woman, you know. Joan actually, after the war, she leaves Bletchley Park at the end of the war, but she actually goes back to GCHQ, which is GCNCS's replacement, twice more. She works for them for a number of years after the war, uh, retires, and then they call her out of retirement to go back at some point. I'm not sure exactly when. It's either the 60s or 70s. I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, Joan was really good at what she did. Yeah, sounds like it. I mean, and then to go back after the war, they called on her, I'm assuming, or at least accepted her to help continue. They called on her. They, They wanted her back. Yeah. They kept a certain number of staff on after the war. You know, nothing like the numbers, obviously, they'd had during the war. Around, I think it's 1948, they realise with the Cold War hotting up that they're going to need a lot more staff again. And in, in quite a, I suppose, quaint British way, because they hadn't really kept a lot of records of who'd worked there, uh, they sat down and tried to work. remember who'd worked there. <laughs> When the museum was started in the 90s, the first trustees were given this list. Um, and that list is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination because you would have something like, I don't know if it is with Joan, but you might have someone saying, oh, Joan Clark works in her tape, didn't she? Oh, yes, put her down. And someone else would go, wasn't there a Mrs. Murray? There's a Mrs. Murray coming to mind. Why? why? Yeah, put her down as well. That would, that's two people. No, they're the same person. Joan marries later and becomes Joan Murray. Oh. <laughs> so the, there were doubles in there. The, that's how they started re-recruiting for the Cold War, basically. <laughs> that's great. Just trying to remember the names. <laughs> and, and it's literally six sides of false gap paper. I've seen you know, a copy of it. It's well, the, the whole museum was based on that. Yeah, but worse than that, post-war recruitment was based on, oh, really? <laughs> well, that that actually leads right into my next question, because in the movie, it's, and obviously during the war, Bletchley Park is top secret. We see an example of this when Joan Clark in the movie, is, she's told to lie to everyone she knows about where she's working and what she's really doing. The penalty for talking about Bletchley Park is high treason, which is an executable offense. But then, of course, today we know about Bletchley Park, so can you speak about some of the ways that they were able to keep Bletchley Park a secret during World War II? And then at what point did the existence of what went on during the war become known to the public? There's probably as many stories as there are people. The, the main thing that you hear every veteran say that I've interviewed, we will ask them a question, you know, what did you tell people? What did you tell your family? You know, did you find it difficult? And the vast majority, there was, a, there was a phrase during the war, hush, hush. You know, someone asks you something, you know, oh, it's very hush, hush, can't talk about it. And that kind of put a full stop to conversations. People would just go, oh, right, okay, I'm not allowed to know about that. Which, you know, in this day and age, you know, of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, we can't imagine people not sharing things. It didn't even cross their minds. So, so many of our veterans, their one regret that they always say is when the story came out, it was too late for my mum and dad to find out what I'd done. You know, they, they, that's what they're sad about, that their parents didn't find out what they did. And actually, we can perfectly illustrate this with a clip from a lady called Elizabeth Marshall, who worked in the Japanese naval section. 
My parents, who died in 1970 and 71, never knew what I did here. Everybody knew about Bletchley Park. Oh, it's some foreign office place. Hush, hush. You were allowed to tell your parents that because, I mean, you know, it was a common name that people knew about. Oh, she's at Bletchley Park. Oh, hush, hush, hush. Yes, I understand, sort of thing. How did you feel about later on when it all started to come out? I mean, it wasn't very long after your parents... I was horrified. Oh, really? Absolutely horrified. I don't mind telling you. My great friend rang me up and said, Have you heard? They're talking all about Bletchley. It's all over the papers. I said, What? We were told never to talk about it. I still find it extremely hard to take in that everything that was locked in my head for so long is now common knowledge. It never occurred to us that anything would be released later on. You never felt, then, any sense of disappointment that you hadn't been able to tell your parents how important the job you did during the war was, because that's something that some people felt, I think. I think they and I accepted that that was what had been laid down, and they didn't ask. I suppose, yes, possibly I was sorry that they'd both died before I could tell them. When, after they'd died, of course, everything came out. Remember my friend saying the same. Both her parents died before they knew what their daughter had done in the war. But never the slightest temptation, by the sounds of it, on your part to tell them. Oh, no. Because it no, was no. absolutely... Mind you, possibly thinking back, we joined the Navy, we joined the Wrens, and we were under service discipline. And it would never occur to us to uh, flout that. What's your abiding memory of this place, and how does it feel to come back? I had the time of my life here. I enjoyed myself very, very much. Bletchley was like its own town. There was an incredible amount of social life going on here. There was a thriving theatre whose director was a captain in the army called Captain Malcolm Howgate, and he was always known as Milky. Cowan Gate. At <laughs> <laughs> any rate, one of my great friends was lucky enough to be accepted at an audition for a play they did there called Yes, My Darling Daughter. And the leading lady in that was a Belgian ATS sergeant called Jeanne Camerts, whose father, subsequently after the war, I discovered, was quite a famous film producer. There were all sorts of weird people here, you know. Interesting weird people, too. The novelist Agnes Wilson, he was here with his partner, Bentley Bridgewater, and they were the nuts. (laughs) 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 But no, it was great fun. It really was. I made a lot of good friends here. You've also got to think, if you're a 17, 18-year-old girl, and I, I use girl because this is what the ladies call themselves still now. When they're together, they call themselves girls. I think because they think back to how they were in that, that day and age, so that's why I use the, the word girl. If you're a 17, 18-year-old girl, your father has probably served in World War One, and military secrecy is something that's been instilled in him. So when your daughter comes home and, oh, how did that interview go? What's it for? Oh, I can't talk about it, father. It's hush-hush. Didn't even think about it. For them personally, that was the easy bit. I think it was more people outside the families that it became difficult because, especially for the men, so any civilian men, they'd be looked down upon because they weren't in uniform. And there were people who left Bletchley Park just because of those pressures. There were men who left and joined actual armed services to go and fight because they felt they weren't doing their their, their bit. But... There were so many different tales. When they first moved to Bletchley in August 1939, 
basically Bletchley Park was it was bought in 1938. It had been a family estate and it was bought and GCNCS came under what we now call MI6, which at the time was the Secret Intelligence Service, so where James Bond works. They wanted what they called a war station. So in all the way through the 30s, it was there was a phrase that the bomber will always get through. So they thought, you know, London would be flattened by bombs. So they're looking for somewhere outside of London. And Bletchley was picked. A lot of people say it was because at the time there was a railway line that, that went from Oxford to Cambridge and Bletchley Station was literally in the middle of the two. It's possibly one reason. There's probably a better reason, which is the A5, which at the time was one of the major roads from London across the country, runs about two miles away from Bletchley Park. And at the side of the A5 were all the major trunk telephone cables for the country which meant they could just take a spur off those lines and run it a few miles down the road to Bletchley, and they had telecommunications for Bletchley, which was probably one of the most important things because they used machines called teleprinters, which are basically kind of like an electronic typewriter. And these teleprinters, if you see like, you know, in old films, you see like ticker tape being printed out, it's that kind of thing. So the vast majority of Bletchley's communications was done using teleprinters. That's probably was a bigger box ticked, the fact that they knew they could have immediate communication around the country. The original cover story was that they were part of the Air Defence of London. So they were just some civil service department that was outside of London organising the Air Defence of London. There were other cover stories that, I mean, I think in the film there's mention of a radio factory, isn't there? Which was another cover story that was used by people. I've interviewed some ladies who used to say, oh, we work in the department that decides who's going to have what medals. And that was it. So oh, we get to pick who has a medal. And they said that it worked, you know, it worked twice as well because they stopped asking about it and then... They sometimes got a drink bought by the serviceman who just asked them <laughs> in case he might get a medal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and another one was they literally had GCHQ on a board in the front of the building. What has now become GCHQ after being GCNCS, the cover name that they used during the war is now the real name. <laughs> so at what point did Bletchley Park become public then? What happened when you went to Bletchley Park as a new member of staff, the very first thing you did was sign something called the Official Secrets Act. And that basically says you're never going to speak about what, what's happened here. Depending upon, I think, who the new member of staff was and also who was inducting them, shall we say, a few veterans have spoken about at that point, the man at the other side of the desk would lean down and take out his service revolver and put it on the desk and say, now, if you ever speak to anyone about this, I shall personally shoot you myself. And if you're a 17-year-old, 17-and-a-half-year-old girl, and there's some chap with a gun in front of you, I think you can, that's going to kind of sink in, isn't it? So no one thought they would ever speak about this again. A lady I interviewed once after the war, she, she was working at a school as a secretary, and they were working during the holiday period at some point and she hadn't been there long and um, she'd seen this chap around the school and he was one of the teachers 
and he came up to her and he, I can't remember exactly what he said now, but he said something that only someone who'd worked at Bletchley Park could have known about. And it wasn't like top secret. It was just something, you know, it was a, a word that had been used at Bletchley Park. And she just sort of looked at him and they just winked. And that was it. So they knew that the other person had worked at Bletchley, but they weren't going to, you know, even then they weren't going to talk about it. In the very late 60s, the chap who'd been the head of the French code-breaking bureau, uh, Bertrand, produced a book where he talks about Enigma. He didn't go into huge amounts of detail, but he'd spoken about it and it had been printed in France. A lot of people in the know kind of knew about it. And also, if they'd sort of gone to the Library of Congress in America, they probably would have found out exactly what they needed to know. Because, you know, for so many years, you've had freedom of, of information over there. And, you know, all this stuff was sitting in the Library of Congress. It was decided, finally, in 1974, that the British government would, would release the information about it. So the first thing that happens is there's a chap who'd been basically the liaison officer between Bletchley and, and the services during the war, Frank Winterbottom. He writes a book called The Ultra Secret. Now, he did know an awful lot about Ultra and how it all was put together and how it was all used, but he didn't know everything. And that book's probably caused more myths. I think probably every myth you have about Bletchley now, you could probably date back to that book and then from then on it's kind of been more and more information has regularly come out so by 79 most of the enigma side of the story was known it wasn't until the early 80s that some of the story about the Lorentz machine came out so Lorentz was a a later machine that the Germans used and this was mainly used by high command so this would be Hitler talking to his actual field commanders. And there were a lot less networks of that. But it was even more complicated than Enigma to break. And this is where they built the Colossus computer later in the war to actually help break that. The first hints of that didn't come out until the very early 80s. More of that has come out over the years. Up until, I think the last release was, it was either 2012 or 2015. Oh, wow. That's pretty recent. Wow. That recent, yeah. The problem is a lot, a lot of, it's not so much the actual enigma breaking or the Lorentz breaking, it's the methodology around it because it's still really basically the same methodology that they're using. It, fundamentally, you know, obviously they're using computers and they weren't using computers. But what you're looking for and how you do it, one of the biggest parts of code breaking that really came into four at Bletchley Park, and, and you could probably say that Gordon Welshman was the godfather of this. So in the same way that, that Turing is known as the, the, you know, the godfather of computing, um, Turing worked really closely with Gordon Welshman. And in fact, Turing's bomb, which we'll get onto, no doubt, should actually be called the Turing-Welshman bomb, but I think we'll go into that later. But Gordon Welshman realised that in some instances, knowing what's in the message isn't that important. I, I'm, I've trawled through thousands and thousands of Enigma decrypts when I'm putting programs together sometimes. And these messages aren't, we will be attacking at dawn. You know, uh, send eight tanks to this coordinate. No, it's 
it's two U-boat officers who are going on a course in Brest in three weeks' time and they want to book a hotel room. It's someone ordering underpants. Literally, some, it's just the minutiae of an army at war. And those messages, even though they're mundane, are actually really important because when you know, I'll go back to these keys that I mentioned earlier. So if you know a certain key is used by a certain part of the armed forces and you know they always broadcast on a certain frequency, so you've got your Y service, which are the, the wireless listeners, listening out for the, that frequency and they're taking down these messages and they can use something called direction finding to pinpoint where they are. So you then know that, for example, you know that Panzer division is located here. Well, that tells you a lot straight off because then if you find out that they go and move, well, why have they moved? And it's without even cracking the messages, you can start building up a map of where all of the German armed forces are. So, I mean, at its height, the best example of this is D-Day. So as the troops leave for D-Day, Eisenhower knows where every single German unit is in France. Because for 18 months, Bletchley Park have had something called the Western Front Committee running. And they have regular meetings running all the way up to D-Day for 18 months. And they're producing reports all the way through it. And they build up an entire picture of of D-Day to the extent that around the 26th or 27th, I think, of May, uh, the 82nd Airborne's landing zones are changed because they find out a German aerial assault unit, so glider-borne paratrooper unit, is being moved towards San Mariglis. Now, I know they do end up landing near San Mariglis and in San Mariglis, but that's only because they were dropped in the wrong place. Their, their landing zone was actually changed, and that would directly through Bletchley Park's work with this Western Front Committee. A lot of that is down to traffic analysis, and that's what we would now call what they're, do- what they're using there, which are the call signs, the radio, re- radio frequencies. That's what we now call metadata. It's exactly the same. It's the same as your header on your email. It tells you the IP address it's come from. It tells you what routers it's been through. It's that. And that's what we use now. So I think that's a lot of the problem with not everything is probably still been released. Well, it makes sense. All that information collected together builds a bigger picture. Yeah. All the little things together might not seem that important. The message about somebody <laughs> getting new underwear, right? Might not seem that important. But that information coupled with all this, these other little bits of data. And I think that's something that as a society, I think we're getting to be more aware of all this information that we're giving out and how much it's, uh, it's really affecting and how much it can be used. Um, but it's interesting that, that that is essentially what they were doing at Bletchley Park was putting a lot of that kind of stuff together. And it was linking things as well. So it seems strange, but Bletchley found an awful lot out about the German army through the Luftwaffe. Because every German army group headquarters had something called a Flevo. That was the nickname. So basically, this was a, a, a Luftwaffe liaison officer, but their nicknames were Flevos. So when we might lose track, say, of, of where a, a German army group had moved to, because one of the biggest problems is if you're a static unit in France in 1944, you're not going to be using Enigma to send your messages 
you're going to be using the telephone and you're going to be using teleprinters and they're landlines and we can't capture those on the airwaves. We can't listen out for that because it's not in the airwaves. But the Luftwaffe might send a move order. They might send, oh, you know, Captain so-and-so is being transferred to be Luftwaffe liaison officer for Army Group B and he's going to go to such and such a town. So we've then found out where that army group is. So it was using other, all of these different strands of information, you know, and you've also got, obviously, on the ground, you've got resistance fighters and you've got SOE agents. So you've got human intelligence that way. But all of these things would all be fed in to get the bigger picture, basically. Now, earlier you talked about the machine, and I want to get to that because in the movie, we see it's just this massive machine with tons of rotors on it. And we see that they use, they actually use the term Heil Hitler that they see coming through a lot of the, the German messages. And they use that to reverse engineer that, okay, if Heil Hitler is in all of these messages, we know how that's coded. And so we can use this machine to start uh, decrypting the Enigma code. Can you do a bit of decryption for us? And Explain how the machine worked that they built in order to break the Enigma code. Probably not without breaking my own brain, but I'll have a go. (laughs) (laughs) Even after I've been involved for so many years, I still, bits bits of how that works, just fundamental. I'm not a stupid man, but I I can't get my brain around some bits of it. (laughs) Yeah. There's a reason why Turing is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's some reason. Yeah. He was a genius. Basically, what you're trying to do, I said earlier about the, the, you've got 157 million, million, million combinations it can be. Before you can even start to tackle that, you want to start bringing that down. So through other methods of code breaking, and there's numerous different parts to this that they would involve, they would try and, right, if we do this, that will bring that down a little bit more, won't it? And if we, if we would take this out, because we know, for example, the one biggest flaw with Enigma is you can pick any key on that keyboard, you know, say, let's say Q. You press Q 26 times, it's never going to come up with Q. It shouldn't be able to encode itself as, as itself. It should always encode itself as another letter. So that is a, a big in, basically. With all these methods, they basically got it down to, and I think this figure's right, 16,000 possible combinations each day for each key. Now, what the bomb machine is doing, now all those dials, there's a reason there's so many, they're replicating 36 Enigma machines. So basically, what the machine is doing is trying 36 different versions of what those three rotors' positions are to see if they get a match. To do that, that's where it all just starts blowing my mind. So the Heil Hitler bit is basically, is kind of a short, is a, a script writing shortcut for something that was called Cribs. So especially with the Germans, because they were so efficient, you know, they're known for their efficiency. You know, everything they did had, structure to it so for example you know if a u-boat came up to give the weather report it would start with the words weather report there were loads and loads of these little clues that they would turn into cribs they'd say right we know you know we're, we're searching for to try and break for example a, a u-boat key 
where we've got these short weather messages that go out, but we know they're going to start everyone with the word weather report. So, okay, we know that the letters can't encode the same thing. It's difficult to do in sound. But if you imagine they would have, if you were to write out what the encoded message was and then write out what your guess is underneath it, and if you then lined up those two lists of, of text, you know where two letters match between the two, that that can't be right. So you shift it along a bit more. And that's basically what the bomb machine is trying to do. So they would come up with these cribs, and then they would write something they called a menu. Now, don't ask me how, but if you look at the back of a bomb machine, it's just this tangle of wires and connectors. Somehow that is the menu being patched into the bomb machine. I, 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 I've, I've stood in front of that thing. I don't know how many times I've listened to the explanation. And, and there's a bit where I, I kind of turn into Homer. And when someone's talking to me and, you know, Homer doesn't understand them and he just hears blah, 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 blah. Because it just gets so, it just melts my brain. I don't understand how it does it, but I know it does it. And that's what they're doing. So they would run this machine and sometimes it would just mechanically stop because there was a problem. But if it found one that would fit the combination they're looking for, they'd call that a stop, the, the bomb girls would, and they'd phone that through. Uh, it's quite funny, uh, the, the building where the bombs were in, in Bletchley originally, uh, the ladies in there didn't find out till 30, 40 years later that where they were phoning through to, which they thought was probably down in London or something, was actually the other side of the path. It was the wooden hut that they weren't allowed in just down there. So someone in there would have... Um, we had a machine called the Typex, which was our kind of equivalent of, of Enigma, but was more advanced. But we'd reverse engineered our Typex machines to act like an Enigma machine. So they would ring through these three letters and they would try the three, they'd set the machine up at the three letters and they'd start typing in the message that they'd got. They were trying to break. And if plain German came out, they knew they got it. And then off they'd be for that key. And they'd break as many of the messages as they could that day. That's the simple way, <laughs> the non-melt-my-brain way. <laughs> well, well, it sounds like there's nothing really simple about it, but yeah, that's, that is a great explanation. No, it's it, one of the biggest myths or, or confusions for people is they know that Turing designed the bomb and that they have in their minds that Turing was you know, the, grand, the godfather of, of computing. So they think that the bomb is a computer, and it's not. The bomb is an electromechanical device. So it's exactly the same as an electric typewriter in that, that, to that extent, that it is just a bunch of metal parts moving through the aid of electric power. Um, there's no thought process. There's no computing process. There's no computing power. Uh, it's not running a program, so to speak. It's running a set task that, like I say, with the, with the menu, with patching up the, the patch bay on the back, I mean, people would, would up, could go, oh, well, that's it being programmed. It's not really. It's just changing a bunch of wires so something goes in a different direction. Uh, and I think that's where the confusion comes in, that people think, oh, well, that must have been you know, Turing's first computer. But it's not. The, the first physical computer, actually, is, is the Colossus, which Turing didn't actually design. He helped... Tommy, so Tommy Flowers worked for the, the post office, the general post office, they were called the GPO. And Tommy Flowers was called in to help with breaking Lorentz. They'd already built one machine that was quite slow, 
and it was reading, trying to read paper tape, basically, and then do counts and things, and that's how they're trying to fix it, uh, how they're trying to break it. He then goes on to design Colossus, but he does some of the fun- fundamentals behind it, some of the thought process behind it, and the methodology comes from Turing. Turing helps him early on. But as for actually designing Colossus, he couldn't really be called the designer of Colossus. It's not till post-war that he actually starts really building computers. So that's good to know, though, because I have seen that a lot where a lot of people think that, oh, the bomb must have been a computer because Turing is known as kind of the, you know, the godfather of computing. And so he built this machine. It must be a computer. Have you heard of Charles Babbage? Yeah. Babbage engine so so it's no in 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 one way it's no different to that it's like a more advanced babbage engine in a way whereas that's calculating logarithms i think wasn't it originally this is doing another electronical mechanical device in the movie we see alan turing start there's a kind of a flashback and we see somebody by the name of christopher morecombe and then later alan actually names one of his machines christopher was Christopher Morcom a real person? Can you talk to who he was? And did Turing really name one of his machines after him? He definitely was. He was um, a school friend of, of Alan's. To all that we know, he was a very, very big influence on Alan's life. Obviously, everything now is secondhand and hearsay. You know, we, we don't know exactly, but we can kind of go from what, what he told other people, so what he told family members and what he told friends and, and pupils, he was teaching post-war in the late 40s, early 50s. So Christopher existed. We know that. We know there was a friendship there. That, you know, it may have been his first love. We don't know. As for the bomb, no, he didn't call the first bomb Christopher. When he arrives at Bletchley Park in September 39, in the film, we see him go straight into the naval hut. Now, he, does, he leads the naval hut later in the war. But the first thing that he does, he's put into a team that's looking at the machine problem team, they're basically called. And it's Alan, Dillian Knox is actually leading that team. And they've already decided that we need a machine to break this machine. That's how you do it. We, we can do it mathematically. We can do it using people. But we'll still be doing this you know, at that point, to have broken one Enigma key for one day with all those settings would have taken longer than the world had existed at that point. You know, that's the, the you break it down to that many combinations. So they knew that they would need to build that machine. And that's what Alan concentrates on his first work at Bletchley. So he doesn't call the first bomb Christopher. It's called Victory. And it actually is installed on March the 18th, 1940. It works, but not well enough. So he's designed this machine that does the job, but even he realises it isn't quick enough at that point. And this is where he starts working with Gordon Welshman. Gordon Welshman comes up with this idea, and, and this is, again, another part of it that just, really, okay, yeah, I take your word for it that that's what it does. Again, you know, this is why these people were geniuses. You know, <laughs> I'm not. So Gordon Welshman invents something called the diagonal board, which they add to the bomb machine. So from that point onwards, every bomb is really a a Turing Welshman bomb. And that second bomb is called Agnes Day in Latin, or or the bomb bomb operators actually called it Agnes. 
and that starts working on August the 8th, 1940. They then retrofit a diagonal board to Victory and, and that starts carry on working from that point. But that sped up the bomb machine to an extent that later in the war, if they, you know, they knew they had a good crib or they, they had pretty much a certain, you know, they, they would also do some things called gardening. So, for example, they would know that a certain lighthouse on the French coast if he spots a British fighter plane, he always sends exactly the same message. And it would be, you know, say, British fighter spotted at such and such a time. So if they haven't broken that, you know, we want to break that key quite quickly the next day. Well, right, send a fighter over there just after midnight. Lo and behold, there's our Enigma operator at the end, tapping away his message. And they get that crib. And on a good day, they could break them in 20 minutes. They never listened to wireless at Bletchley, apart from one period, and that was the run-up to D-Day and a week or two after D-Day. And they actually set up a section of, of listening station at Bletchley. So literally the messages were handwritten being passed through. So for this year's D-Day celebrations, we actually released a lot of those to the public because one of the chaps who was there at the time had actually kept copies after the war and he's given them to the museum in his will. And so on D-Day, they were breaking messages and getting the actual ultra-intelligence out to the field commanders within two and a half hours in some cases. So from the moment that message has been sent, two and a half hours later, an Allied commander is looking at the message. Wow. That is an exception. One of the biggest things, and this speaks to, I think, one of the things that you want to talk about, about the convoys that are shown in the film, don't you? Yes. Right, this convoy, we need to save this convoy. Bletchley wasn't best about tactical intelligence. So that unit over there, what they're going to do in the next six hours, they're better at looking at the bigger picture and what's going to happen. So, you know, for D-Day, it's brilliant because they've got 18 months, they plan it all, everything's fine. We've just recently had the anniversary of Operation Market Garden and people say, well, why didn't Ultra know about this? Well, we did. We kind of knew about it. We kind of knew. In fact, I'm already working on an episode about Bulge for later in the year. And, you know, there's, as I'm reading through Enigma decrypts, I can see things that say to me, right, well, that's that's a unit that was involved in the Battle of the Bulge. That's a unit that's involved in That's because I'm looking with hindsight and I know that that unit ends up being in the Battle of the Bulge and then moving from Italy to France, to uh, German border, means that they're about to be one of the units in the Bulge. They don't know that at the time. And it also speaks to that thing about in the film where they get to midnight and they haven't broken it. And it's, that's it. Start again. Because that isn't the case. Because, yes, you would let some stuff go by. But breaking that information, it's not that immediate tactical information that Bletchley are looking for most of the time. It's what's happening in the future. So breaking something two, three, four days later, so, for example, uh, the, the 82nd Airborne was a perfect example I said earlier. So we find out that that unit's been transferred to France. You know, if that wouldn't, probably wasn't broken on the day, but as soon as they have broken it, they send that through, and that has a major consequence to D-Day. Going back again to the traffic analysis, so if we know that a certain frequency is being used by a Panzer division in Italy in 1944, and all of a sudden, some of our Y station operators start finding that this 
same frequencies being used in France, and it's in a certain area of France, then we know that that area in France is actually the, the major training ground and refitting ground for all the Panzer divisions in Germany has. So every Panzer division goes to France when they want to be refitted and, say, given new tanks and trained on those new tanks. So that's why that frequency is no longer being used in Italy and it suddenly started being used in France. So we know that they've been refitted. And that says a number of things. That says, one, they've gone there, they're going to be strengthened, they're going to be given better tanks. It probably also means that they're going to be put into battle somewhere else very shortly. And it's all these things that not necessarily breaking the message on the day still needs. And, and that's what Bletchley was brilliant at, was producing strategic intelligence. An intelligence that wasn't just, you know, like I say, that unit's going to... It's very rare, like I said earlier, that you would get a message that says, you know, we're going to attack at dawn tomorrow. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier, and this kind of leads right into something I did want to talk about. In the movie, there's a scene where they find out there's a British convoy less than an hour away from German U-boats. And it is one of those messages where they find out about this, but they can't warn the convoy about it. Because if they do, the Germans will know that they've cracked Enigma and then the Germans will completely change the Enigma design and everything that they've worked for up until this point will be for naught and they will have lost everything essentially. You talked a little bit about this earlier and that was one part in the movie that was eye-opening to me as to once you crack this, you have to decide how much of it you actually take action on because you don't want others to know that you know what they're talking about. <laughs> so how, how realistic did the movie get that for the information that they were acting on versus what to leave alone? Yeah, I, I think, again, this is with a lot of what we call the issues with the film. I look at this slightly stepping back as a, as a creator myself, as, as someone who's been involved with film and, and, and radio. And you're looking for shortcuts to tell a, a bigger a bigger part of the picture. So, you know, for example, you'll have composite characters of, of two or three people in one character to, to give over an essence that you're trying to push. Um, what they're doing with that, with the convoy, I can see exactly what they're trying to do, which is, is to talk to that bigger picture that you're asking about, of what is the knock-on, and there's a lot of knock-ons. If we make this too obvious... Yes, there is a chance the Germans will start being suspicious. Why they were no more suspicious than they were, no one will ever know. Admiral Dernitz, who was the head of the U-boats and then later became the head of the Kriegsmarine, German Navy, he instigated changing the naval enigma to have a four-rotor machine in 1942. And that's the kind of the closest they ever got to worrying. In a way, that was just part of their ongoing changes. All the way through the war, they kept changing the Enigma machine. They kept changing processes. Um, a lot of the early luck that Bletchley had were down to human error. So I explained earlier all the different processes they had to go through. The, the, the very next thing they had to do and the first thing they had to send to the guy at the other end was a random six letters or three letters. Human beings aren't very good at being random. So you're going to use things like some of the ladies say, you know, they got to learn about a lot of German swear words because they would use that. Or they might use something as simple as H-I-T-L-E-R. They just use things that came to mind easily. 
as the war went on, they tightened things up like that, and there were less of those. And really, all the way through the war, the German Navy was more security conscious. Uh, and the Army and the Navy and the Air Force all had different procedures as well. It appears that every time there was a suspicion, and like I say, it was generally Dernitz, they taught themselves out of it. They had so much faith in this machine, and they just didn't imagine that the enemy would have the ability to put together enough people to break it. They were so determined that 157 million, million, million combinations, no one's ever going to be able to do this. Part of that might have been down to the way the German state was organised. So Hitler basically liked to give lots of people kind of the same job to do and get them to try and outdo each other. So the problem you have with German intelligence is you don't have a German Bletchley Park. You have the Abwehr, which is the military intelligence that Admiral Canaris was running. They've got their own code-breaking unit. The SS have got their own code-breaking unit. There's multiple numbers of code-breaking units. Fundamentally, before they try and break the Allied codes, they're fundamentally trying to outdo the other guy. Which means they're probably not talking to each other and helping each other out. They definitely were not helping each other, and they definitely were not talking to each other. The German Navy were really good. They broke British naval codes quite early on in the war, and they'd broken the codes for the convoys and that really helped the u-boats so that's when the u-boat wolf packs are at their height what they call the first happy time where they were just sinking so many millions of tons of, of shipping every year and they'd broken our codes and we discovered that and it took a while for the admiralty to change the codes again when I was doing an episode on the Bismarck, I read about 4,000 decrypts around that period. And there was a couple in there that I found that I double-checked with our historian. And he said, yeah, that's basically them sending information to a U-boat that they've taken from one of our codes and they're sending back to them. Because it was like, this doesn't quite look like their normal message. So yeah, they, they were reading our codes. But generally, they would put it down to, especially like, say, for example... Oh, there must have been someone in the Italian. Someone in the Italian section must have must have spoken about that. Must have given that a secret away. We'd also try and cover it. So, say for example, we're breaking an, an Italian code, and we know they're about to send a huge convoy to Rommel. Um, we know that convoy's going, and as they show in the film, you know, if we attack that, the first thing they're going to say is, "Right, how did they know that convoy was going to be there? They've broken our codes. Change it all quick." So they might send a plane out that just happens to go past that convoy. So when the convoy's attacked later, yes, there's going to be that initial crack. Well, how did they know? They must have broken our cut. Hold it. There was that plane, wasn't there, that spotted us? Yeah, it'd be that one. It'd be that plane. So they would try and cover it. I think the nearest it came to being discovered was when the Germans invaded Crete because one of the British officers on Crete had ultra-intelligence that he'd been given. And we don't understand how the Germans didn't discover it after the capture of Crete. Whether it was destroyed, we don't know, but that was the closest we think it came to being discovered. They just kept putting it down to, it must have been human intelligence. Oh, it must have been the French workers who were working in that port must have given the, the British the information about that youth boat going out. 
They always put it down to that because it seemed so ridiculous that anyone could break it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's Occam's razor, the easiest solution, right? Now, you mentioned um, possibly destroying something, and that leads into the next question that I have, because near the end of the movie, the team at Bletchley Park celebrates victory in Europe Day, and then after they're sort of told to burn everything and pretend like they don't know each other anymore. Can you speak to when Bletchley Park's mission ended at the end of the war, and were they told to destroy everything that we see in the movie and pretty much just kind of pretend like none of this ever happened? The film pretty much gets it right. That's definitely one of the things they get really right because I've spoken to a number of veterans who speak about exactly that. So you're going to play a clip now where this lady's called Betty Flavel and she was one of the bomb operators and the bombs were actually in different sites around Britain. So they weren't all in one place to be bombed, basically. And she was in a place called Eastcote, which is just outside London. And um, she explains exactly what happens after VE Day. Well, I was a bomb operator at Eastcote on Sea Watch. Sea Watch was actually on duty when they announced VE Day. So it stopped the following day. The chief officer gave us all a little pep talk. Well, I think she thought we were all going to lose our honour because of everybody feeling free and throwing away caution to the winds and celebrating and drinking. She was a poor woman. <laughs> it's been terrible for her. And we all rushed up to London and throwing the crowds there outside the palace, shouting and marching them down Piccadilly with about 20 Canadian Air Force officers all arm in arm. Had a marvellous day. And then we slept in the YWCA Baker Street, which we always did. Came back to Eastcote the next day. And it must have been the following day then that we then sat outside. There was a heat wave. Sat outside and smashed up the bombs. Well, didn't actually smash them. The Air Force boys, who were GCHQ engineers, they had dismantled the big things and we had all the small stuff and all these hundreds of drums we had to take them apart. Everything was counted, screws and bearings and so on. Did that make you feel, oh, what have we been doing? No, no, that made we were all happy. That was it, it was the end of it. It was thought that all of the bomb machines had been dismantled. In very recent years, GCHQ have admitted that two were kept, and they were kept up until the late 50s, early 60s. We believe they were used until the late 50s, and then they were basically stored away until the early 60s when it was realised that we're never going to use these again, and they, they destroyed them then. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of GCHQ, so it's like your, our equivalent of your NSA. And it's a big donut-shaped building in Cheltenham, and that's where our codebreakers now operate. So a couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to be invited there to go and record, which is a very strange experience, I must say, to, to go to one of the most secret places in Britain. <laughs> Pop out a recorder. <laughs> well, especially when the receptionist goes through her normal spiel of, reading from a car going, you've got none of the following devices on you, telephone, re- electronic recording device. Yeah, I have actually. Sorry. <laughs> Let me explain, you know, before you arrest me. Um, and right in the centre of the building, they have their own museum, they have their own little museum. And they've actually got some parts from the bombs that they dismantled in the late 60s, or the early 60s, isn't there? And actually a few parts of Colossus as well. After the war, th- there's a lot of different stories about why they did this. Some people 
say it was a direct order from Churchill because they were going to they captured all these Enigma machines at the end of the war and they were going to sell them off to all the other like Commonwealth countries or the countries that would you know at the time were part of the British Empire that would soon become independent. So we wanted to still read their traffic. Um, tiny bits of that that are true. Um, we know, for example, that the East German police were using Enigma in the late 40s and 50s. So I've no doubt that GCHQ were probably reading that traffic. But, you know, the film does pretty much get it right. that An awful lot of just the paperwork and everything around Bletchley was destroyed. And yet again, you don't have to take my word for it because here's a clip from a lady called Joyce Roberts who was a teleprinter operator. Oh, we used to have fun, we did. I mean, most of the chaps that were there had done years in Italy and had come back and were really then working up to demob. So it, it wasn't a very dark time. I suppose it was the beginning, but if you remember in 1945, well, you don't remember, but in 1945, things were definitely looking up after the invasion and, and it looked OK all the time then, so we began to... Uh, yeah, hope, yeah. And I remember VE night, I was in um, Trafalgar Square. There's a picture in there of Trafalgar Square. Well, I was in that melee on VE night. I remember hearing about the atom bomb. We were coming from breakfast and we had a big tank of water where we washed our utensils, as they were called, our knife, fork and spoon. And somebody came up to me and said, there's been a big new bomb just dropped, you know, and that was the beginning of the atomic age. I remember that, yeah. But then VJ night, all the chaps, very naughty of them, the chaps who were in the men's billets, they all took the furniture out and made a bonfire of it on VJ. <laughs> I think they couldn't care less then. The war was over and they thought we were painting mob. So who cares? I remember that. <laughs> that has to make it really difficult to know exactly what happened when all, that, all, all the documentation and all the evidence was destroyed. At the museum, we, you know, all the time we're getting people inquire. Unfortunately, it's more this way now that a family member will say, oh, my granny, we think my granny was at Bletchley Park. She's died now, but we think she was at Bletchley Park. Is she on your role of honour? And we have to tell them we don't know because unless they've told us or they were possibly had been in contact with the museum or GCHQ recently, we wouldn't know. So we have to kind of rely on people coming to us to tell us that they were at Bletchley Park. And then we can, we can sort of look at their, if we need to look at their um, service record. It doesn't say code-breaking at Bletchley Park. Obviously, you know, there's, it'll just say MI or something for military intelligence, or if they were a Wren, for example. Um, it'll just say they served at HMS Pembroke 5. And we know from that, oh, that's Bletchley Park. Or they were, we know from that they were a bomb operator, you know. So there, there's little hints to what, what it was. But yeah, that's one of the things the film does kind of get right. And like I said earlier about the lady, you know, who was working at the school, because, you know, you have Alan in the film originally saying to the police when they arrest, they're questioning him, what did you do during the war? Oh, I worked in a radio factory. And they did just not talk about it. And they had to just say, you know, oh, right, there's a gap on your CV here. What, what did you do for that period? Oh, I was, I was just admin. Uh, for who? Uh, for the Foreign Office. Okay. What were you doing? Can't talk about it. Well, that's not going to be very good then. And a lot of people did, you know, Alan's probably the worst case 
for how it affected them post-war. But, you know, in much smaller ways, that secrecy affected so many of the staff. You know, I've spoken to so many veterans that think they didn't get certain jobs because they couldn't talk about what they'd done. Yeah, I mean, that's it's important when you're trying to find a job. You're looking at the past history and what have you done and prove that you can do what, you, what you're applying for. And I mean, you think, especially post-war, and let's say you're a chap and you've been a member of the civilian foreign office staff at Bletchley Park, as Alan would have been classed. For most people, you'd probably go for an interview after the war. And probably the first question the guy on the other side of the desk is going to say to you is, what did you do during the war? And he's expecting you to say, oh, well, I, I was in the 8th Army, I served in North Africa, and then I served in Italy, and I ended the re- end of the war in northern Italy in the Po Valley. All oh, right, OK. Or, you know, I was at Bomber Command or whatever. If you turn around and say, um, I worked for the Foreign Office, I was in admin. You've got another 20 people out there, and the next guy comes in, he's going to tell you that he was in Bomber Command and was shot down in 1942, and he spent three years in a German prison or war camp. Who are you going to give the job to? You know, and we've had veterans also who there was one veteran whose father disowned him because he felt because he hadn't been in uniform, and this won't be the only one. He hadn't been in uniform. He therefore thought that he'd been a coward and hadn't served his nation. And even on his father's deathbed, he still felt that he couldn't tell him the truth. Wow! So his father went died thinking his son was a coward and had done nothing for the nation. When in fact he had done one of the most important jobs that there was. Wow. That person, in fact, was one of the most famous code breakers as well. There's been quite a few stories like that. And, and, and it's, you know, that, that it has affected people. I mean, I, I always, every time I interview a veteran, I always thank them for their service. And it's so surprising. It is something we're getting better at in this country. And it's something I, I think Americans are really good at for thanking their service personnel. It's something we haven't really done in this country. And it's only, I would say, only in the last 10, 15 years, people have started doing it. It is very unusual for me to interview a veteran and at the end of the interview to say to them, thank you for their service. For them not to be taken up by, taken short by me saying that and going, oh, no one's ever thanked me. Oh, thank you, young man. You know, and I like to say to them, you know, in a way, they didn't stop serving in 1945 when they were demobbed. They kind of carried on serving for another 30 years because they had to keep that secret for 30 years. You know, with Alan, although he wasn't, you know, didn't directly design Colossus, he's been involved with Colossus. It's forwarded his knowledge of how he's going to build his universal machine. And to not really be able to talk about that in public, just that on its own must have been so difficult. You know, all of those people, Alan is the prime example, but there are a lot of people who Britain probably could have been the world's leading country for computing if that secrecy hadn't been there around Colossus and, what, and you know, fundamentally what had happened at Bletchley Park during the war. You can understand why, but it must have been so difficult for those people to live with that. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, that's the most important thing you've done with your life up to that point, especially in... Who knows if you'll ever do anything that will match it and you still can't talk about it. Do you know what, Dan? Without even knowing about it, you've just more or less quoted a Bletchley Park veteran. And I'm so glad because it's from one of the most moving interviews I've ever recorded in my entire career. How did you come to be here in the first place? What was your way in? How were you invited? I got a letter from a friend, my greatest friend, actually, who had somehow 
got here, been invited here, and she wrote and said, we're desperately busy, Jane, we desperately need people like you to help us. Why don't you come? Were you fresh from school? Yes, fresh from school. And when I got here, of course, it was full of my friends, because they'd all been invited the same way. (laughs) Quite extraordinary. And and was it largely because you, you were a linguist? I think the German thing was very influential. But I had just done a secretarial course also, so that, I suppose, was thought to be useful. And I did know a lot of the people here, and I was somebody who was prepared to come and give my life for it, which is what we all were prepared to do. So were you interviewed in any way? When I came? Mm -hmm. Oh, no. And when I came, I was 18, and um, what was the point of interviewing another girl of 18 who didn't know anything about it anyway? We were lucky enough to be here at the right time, in the right place. We were able to do what we did because of that. It may be the most important thing that any of us have ever done in our lives. We didn't realise it at the time, but we do now. That lady, Jane Fawcett, you know, you can hear in her voice how emotional and how much it did mean to her. It's nice that these people are getting the recognition they deserve now, but, you know, it is very late in the day. Earlier, you mentioned Alan Turing getting robbed and talking about working at a radio operator. And I wanted to talk about that because we haven't really talked about that much up until this point. But throughout the entire movie, there's this plot going on in the 1950s where his home is being robbed. And then they kind of tell the story of his time at Bletchley Park throughout the movie as flashbacks. But then ultimately, we see Alan Turing's years after Bletchley Park is being a very sad ending to the story. Some people believe that he killed himself after government-mandated hormonal therapy as a form of treatment for homosexuality. But then the movie also implies that no one knew about his work at Bletchley Park during his lifetime. Can you talk about Alan Turing's years after Bletchley Park? Yeah, one of the biggest things I think the movie misses out on is to the extent... It is Alan's sexuality in a way because to an extent, you know, the whole subplot of Cairn Cross blackmailing him. For a start, that doesn't happen. They never work together. Uh, Cairn Cross works in a completely different section. Uh, Cairn Cross was a spy for the Russians. He was supposedly walking out with his trousers stuffed with slips of Enigma decrypts. Um, it kind of backfired because the KGB, we believe, didn't think this could be real. But they didn't think they could possibly have broken this Enigma machine let alone have all of these decrypts. <laughs> Just like the Germans. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> so they probably ignored everything he sent them. But um, the way Bletchley Park was set up, it was so compartmentalised, literally people in one hut didn't know what people in the next hut were doing, like I was saying about the lady phoning through with the stops for the bomb. Um, even down to in the same hut, someone in one room wouldn't know what the person in the next room was doing. So it was very compartmentalised like that. People knew Alan was gay at Bletchley during the war. That wasn't a secret. There were people who were gay at Bletchley Park. Not a problem. I think people were more forgiving in a way. Whether it was because we were all up against it, I don't know. But um, when the museum was first founded, before it was even founded, the people who became the trustees decided to have a last enigma party, they called it. And they were going to have a reunion of the coat breakers. And they taught British Telecom who it was at the time, who owned the property, and GCHQ into allowing them to do it. This was 1991, and there was still a lot of those early codebreakers who were still left alive. And when I first became involved, I spoke to one of the, I talked to one of the early trustees, Peter Westcombe, and he, he kept tantalising me about 
the fact that people had been there with tape recorders on the day. So as an audio engineer and a producer, I'm thinking, this is gold. I want this gold. And we couldn't find them for four years. Kept asking different people. And we thought, right, it's one of the earlier trustees who's no longer connected and he's taken them away and we're never going to see those again. And we discovered them in a filing cabinet because they had been, at some point, someone had digitised them. And it's something like 18 hours of recordings. There were lots of tape recorders that day. And you have people like Peter Twin, who worked directly with Alan Turing. And it's just a bunch of these people would have been in their, I'm guessing, 60s and 70s by then, just reminiscing. And Peter, quite matter-of-fact, says, I think one of the interviewers says something to him about, you know, did you know about Alan's sexuality? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, he made a pass at me. But, you know, I wasn't that way inclined. So I just said, oh, thank you, Alan. But no, I'm not that bothered. It never affected our work. You know, and it was people knew who, who he was and what he was. I think they, they kind of don't in the film. The thing that I think is the saddest part of what happens to Alan is the way it happens, is the fact that in a way he was, he was such an innocent that it's Alan who goes to the police to report that he's been burgled. And when they ask, you know, why was this chap there? He just turns around and says, oh, well, because we've been having a sexual relationship. And he describes what form that sexual relationship has taken. He basically grasped himself up, you know, and, and I think that is the saddest part, that he was such an innocent in some ways to the world that he didn't realise what it was going to lead to. And that's what then leads to the, the way our antiquated laws were at the time, that if you were convicted, you either had to go to prison or you had to be what they call being chemically castrated, which was supposed to cure you of this. And yes, Alan's mother and some people around the family at the time did say, oh, well, maybe it was an accident. Um, you know, he had been working with, with chemicals because he, he was also doing, he'd kind of given up on computers just before this period. And he was moving into biology. This is how clever the guy is. You know, he was studying, there's a, a word for it, and I can't think what it is at the moment, but he was studying how stripes and spots are created in nature on animals and the number of petals on a flower, things like this. And the work he was doing then in 1952 is still the fundamental basis of the work that's being carried out now. So he was working with chemicals at the time, and one of the chemicals was cyanide. So Sarah Turing used to say to people she felt it was an accident. You know, he'd got the chemicals on his hand, he was a bit clumsy, and he's then eating the apple, and, and you know, it's an accident. But I think it's probably pretty obvious that it was suicide. It is a sad ending to that story of just a, a brilliant man. I mean, that he could just essentially master computing and then... All right, I'm going to move on to biology now. And-, and, and, and even, I suppose, in a way, you know, if you look at the actual Turing test, this is the whole basis of the film. You know, the film gets its name from the imitation game because he writes this paper where he says, you know, imagine there's this computer, this, this device that can act like a human being. You know, how do you determine that that is a human being or, or a machine? You know, can machines think? And that's where the imitation game comes from. You know, you're, you're talking, that's on a much higher level than just mathematics or chemistry or biology. You know, you're talking about philosophy there and the nature of being a human being, really. 
and he was a good he was a really good long distance runner as yeah. well yeah just genius level stuff it just melts my mind <laughs> For longtime listeners of the podcast, they might know that we covered the imitation game way back on episode number three. And as you might expect, over the years since that episode has been released, I've had various folks be kind enough to write in about that episode. Now, as is often the case with online comments, the nature of that feedback can vary quite a bit. I'll get one message that says they insist their version of the story is correct, and then another one will come in and they'll contradict that with yet another version of the story that they say is correct. Now, I really appreciate your help on this, Mark, because you took the time to review that original episode and do some fact-checking on that to see how accurate it really was. And you sent along some great comments. Some of them are things that I got wrong, and some of them are just things that need more clarification. So what I'd like to do is to walk through each of those, and I'll explain what I had said in the original episode, and then you can give us the correction or clarification, whatever it may be. Sound good? Yeah. Can I just say one thing before we do this? Yeah. And this, this isn't even about Bletchley. This is about your podcast. That when I, we first got in touch online, I thought, right, okay, I'm going to listen to this episode. And for a number three episode, I was so impressed how great that show sounded. I really was. It was, that was what immediately attracted me to doing this because I thought, no, Dan really cares about what he's doing. And then the whole premise of the show, and then, you know, us doing this, you know, it, it just shows how much you care about this. And that, you know, that's, that's what makes it so engaging. I appreciate that. And I have to admit, I was, it was episode number three, so I was a bit nervous about having you check it out. <laughs> you should be a lot prouder of your episode than num- number three than I am of any episode number three of anything I've done. I know that. <laughs> All right. But, you know, regardless, I do want to make sure that we fix some things that got wrong and, and clarify some things, just kind of set the record straight that we can. So uh, the first has to do simply with the name of the place that Turing was recruited by. I called it the Government Codes and Ciphers School. And even though uh, people listening to the audio version, I actually written it with an I, but that's not quite right. That's American and, and British, isn't it? Um, we, we, we have cipher, same language, separated by an ocean. Um, we we spell it with a Y, and it's it's government code and cipher school, cipher plural. So that's what you refer to when you say GC and CS, essentially. GC and CS, yeah, that's what it's basically known as up until the end of the war, and then that's what is now our GCHQ. Okay, okay. And then shortly after that, in the episode, there was a date that I got incorrect. And when you mentioned this, I was like, oh, how did I how did I get that wrong? I went back and listened to it, and actually, I. The when I went back and listened to it, it was correct. But then I also know that there's been times where I've edited things and as needed to and and gone back. So there's probably different versions of that out there. So with that said, I want to make sure I get this right. I had said that England declared war on Germany on September 9th, 1939, which is not correct. Uh, but then that I said the very next day, Turing arrived at Bletchley Park. So what's the correct date? Um, well, I know how it's happened. Again, that's that's Britain and America because you you have your you you produce your dates a different way around. You put uh, the month first, don't you? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Which always confuses me, and that's where the nines come from from September. Um, so it's September the third. So so Germany invade Poland on the first. 
they're given an ultimatum and at 11 o'clock on September the 3rd, we, we declare war. As I said earlier, we're not entirely sure the actual day that Turin turns up. We know it's within sort of the, the first two to three week period of September 1939. Okay, so early on in the war then, I mean, it would have been right there. Okay. Yeah. But as I said earlier, you know, I mean, they actually, the staff are given at this point, pre-war, they're based in London and they're given, they're issued a movement order at the very beginning of August 1939. And they're told that the government code school will be moving on the 15th of August. So actually on the, the day war was declared, you know, it's not a case of everyone then gets a, a telegram there was a kind of myth that said that everyone got this telegram saying that um, it went something along the lines of Auntie Flo is not well. And that meant to everyone who got one that you had to arrive at Bletchley Park. Well, bearing in mind that Bletchley Park is the, and I emphasise the word, secret war station of the secret intelligence service, uh, they're not going to know where Bletchley Park is and that they've got to go to Bletchley Park. What they more likely received was they would know that they'd get a telegram and they would just get a telegram saying, buy yourself a ticket to Bletchley Park and you'll be met at the station. And that's probably how it was done. A little more straightforward since you don't know where to go. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of these myths have grown up. You know, one, through lack of actual documentation and two, just gilding the lily a little to make it a bit more exciting, I think. Now, the next clarification is something I think we might have discovered or covered in our discussion, but I just want to make sure we get it right. In the original episode, I mentioned that the bomb was a computer, and that was something that kind of the the imitation game kind of implies. And you commented that one of the bigger issues with the historical accuracy of the film was that the bomb was not a computer. No, like I say, it's an electromechanical device, not even fundamentally a computer. You know, it's not even an early computer. It wasn't programmable. It wasn't digital. Colossus is a digital computer, and and that's the first one. In the original episode, I walked through the history of the Enigma and how it was based on a decryption device from Poland, and then they handed off to the British before the Germans attacked Poland. Um, And you did talk about this a little bit earlier in our discussion, but can you just Give us kind of a bullet point or just kind of clarify the history of the ending machine for us. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not wrong in what you've said there. You're fundamentally right. So basically, as I said earlier, we'd got this early Enigma machine, uh, the commercial one, and that, they worked out how that worked. You read some of the documentation and it's just, oh, well, well yes, we've worked that out as if it's nothing, you know. But we have to remember that this is that early machine before the additions are made to it before the procedures are made more secure. The next part of the story in reality, because between the wars, GCNCS wasn't really interested in Germany. They didn't see Germany as the immediate threat. It was more Russia, and a lot of their code-breaking effort was against Russia and then against Italy. So the Italians are using Enigma machines during the war in Ethiopia. And the Spanish are given Enigma machines by the Germans during the Spanish Civil War. And we end up reading both of those. But again, these are, let's say, Enigma Mark II. So they make a number of changes to the machine. Then if we move on to the early 30s, the Poles 
I think it was over a holiday weekend. This is the story as I know it. The central post office in Warsaw, they contact whoever's in charge of, of you know, the Secret Service, their version of the Secret Service or whatever, and say, we've had a package delivered here and it's labelled for the German embassy. But obviously we're not going to deliver this until Monday. Do you want to have a look at it? And they go and have a look at it and it's an Enigma machine. And it's one of these more intricate Enigma machines. And over that weekend, the Poles basically copy the device. And the Poles were the first people to come to the decision that this needed mathematicians to break this machine. So they had three main code breakers who worked on Enigma pre-war. And they broke it. And in breaking that machine, they then designed what they called the bomber. And it's nothing like the bomb that we see in, in Bletchley Park later and we see in the film. It's a square box. It's about two feet square and maybe four feet, three, four feet high. And it has a number of drums sort of stacked up on top of each other on the top. But it kind of works on the same principle, what it was doing, sort of testing wheel settings. That worked up until the mid-30s, at which point the Germans bring in the plug board. And once the plug board was brought in, it meant the poles could no longer break that the Enigma machine as it now was. What the poles do, which is absolutely vital to what happens at Bletchley Park later, is from March 1939, basically up till September the 1st, Hitler is ramping up his attacks on Poland and what he wants from Poland. Everybody knows there's going to be a war. He's done the same the year before about Czechoslovakia. He's done the same previously with Austria. He's done the same with the the Ruhr. Finally, people are realising, do you know what? He's going to do this, and he will carry on doing it. The Poles know they're going to be attacked. So in July 1939, the Poles invite members of the French code-breaking bureau and three members of GCNCS to come and have a meeting in a forest just outside Warsaw. It's called the Piri Forest. And at that meeting, they gave both the French and the British everything they knew about Enigma. They gave them copies of the Enigma machine that they'd built, and they gave them every piece of knowledge they had about it. The really weird thing about this is, to get to Germany, the British team travelled by train. So we have in our museum, we have Commander Denniston, who was the first commander of GCNCS, and he was up till mid-war. We have his passport. And on his passport, with a German eagle and the swastika on it, are his visa stamps for travelling through Germany in July 1939. And in his suitcases were all the information we had to help us start breaking the Enigma. Travelling right through Germany. <laughs> wow. Yes. And it didn't finish there because once Poland's invaded, the Polish co-breaking team managed to get out and they get to France and they're working with the French directly in December 1939. The best way we can describe it is we couldn't break into the current version of Enigma. The Poles couldn't break into the current version of Enigma. The Poles had had more success than we had with previous versions. The fundamental things that they'd learned from doing that, which they told us, and told Dilly Knox especially, meant that we then made this next leap. 
And it's thought that that probably saved Bletchley Park at least six months' work, which if you think at that period of time means that by Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain, we're beginning to start regularly reading some of the keys, and Air Force keys especially. And that's so important, you know, to be able to read Luftwaffe's keys during the Battle of Britain. But we know that Alan Turing goes to Paris in December 1939 because they're having a few problems. And at that meeting in Paris with the Polish codebreakers, whatever they, they tell him and whatever they sort out for him enables him to come back. And then in January 1940, we make our first break into Enigma at Bletchley Park. Going back to the original episode, there's a part where I mentioned that the Enigma had to be broken more than once. And while that's true, you commented that the true history is a little bit more complicated than that. Can you try to unravel that a little bit more for us? Yes, so there's not one Enigma key to be broken every day. At the height of the war, the German state has what we'd call now a network, but actually called keys. So each part of the German state, be it the army, air force, Navy, Abwehr, Foreign Office, Police, everyone had their own sets of keys. And at the height of the war, there's 60 of those. There's about 60 that need to be broken. And they change every day. They change every night at midnight. And Bletchley, one of their biggest issues is they never have enough staff to do everything. I mean, for a start, they don't have enough Y service personnel, actually wireless operators, listening for that Morse code and writing it down. There's not enough of them to be able to do all of that. So for a start, you've cut down what you're selecting. So you have to go, right, okay, we know this certain unit broadcasts in a certain frequency, and that's important to us at the moment. So let's concentrate on that. So they're breaking only probably 20 to 25 keys a day. And then they're not reading all of the traffic from each of those keys either. They're only reading a certain percentage of it, because obviously we've not captured what we haven't captured in the first place. We can't read. Right, right. Makes sense. Something else that requires a little bit more clarification from the original episode is the point where I was talking about Turing going to see Winston Churchill about funding and the whole action this day memo that we see in the movie. The movie mentioned the cost of the machine was 100,000 pounds, and I had said that that was correct, but that's not really correct. Uh, what was the cost of the machine itself? And you kind of give us some more details about the action this day memo that we see in the movie and the funding behind it. Yeah. So I got David to double check this, our historian to double check this. They had an ongoing budget for the bomb machines and that was where the 100,000 comes from. So by the end of the war, they averaged out the cost and each one cost 60,000 as an average, which in comparison is about the same price as a Sherman tank. That's a decent price for a machine. Yeah, so I think that's a good comparison, really. I mean, we built around 200. Once we had started sharing intelligence with yourselves, America built loads of bombs. You had your own bomb machine. Slightly different design. Turing went over to America and spent a good year or so in America helping them with it. And they slightly redesigned it. If you see a picture of an American bomb and a British bomb, you can tell, yes, they are the same machine, but do you know what? The, the American ones actually look a bit better. <laughs> Shh, I didn't say that. <laughs> it's all about functionality. That's all that really matters at the end of the day. <laughs> oh, and the action this day, wasn't it? That is, the, I think, the biggest problem with the film. 
there's an entire subplot, and I know why it's there, where they build the character of Commander Deniston as being the foil for Turin. You have to have, you know, your hero has to have something, someone that he fights against, doesn't he? In this case, it couldn't be further from the truth. Commander Deniston, you just have to read the documentation. We, we've literally this month just done an episode on, as we record this, it's the 80th anniversary of the start of World War II. So we've done an episode about the early days of Bletchley Park and especially about the, the recruitment and the actual physicality of people turning up. And in the early weeks, Deniston is a very, very, very polite man. But even in these memos that he's sending, so he sends in the film, Mark Strong plays the character of Menzies. And there's a letter that he sends Menzies in mid-September 1939. And it's, it's very much of its day. You know, it's very, very polite. But his main complaints about the conditions for his staff and the fact that, you know, some of them are in one hut here, some are, have been put in a school down the road. You know, while we've had quite fine days in September and the walking has not been bad, I can imagine this will be awful during the winter, you know, and he's worrying about how his staff are going to have to walk out in the snow and the rain in the winter and, and, you know, how they're all cramped in one office and they need room to think. Deniston was really concerned about his staff. The way he is portrayed in the film as, you know, his shock at Alan saying, oh, no, I'll be able to break that, him saying it won't be broken. Deniston knew it would be broken. You know, that's why he just, at that point, he spent something like six, seven, eight years starting this recruitment for mathematicians at this point because he knows he's going to break that machine and he knows who he needs to break it. And no one is in that building without him knowing that they're going to help break that machine. So that, I mean, that's the background to that whole letter part. So it's kind of that, that part of it is built on a myth. The letter exists. So Winston Churchill visited Bletchley once during World War II, and this was in late 1941. And it was just a... He, he turned up and he just sort of went and saw the heads of the huts. In fact, only last month I interviewed a lady. I never thought this would happen. I interviewed a lady who worked in Hut 8 with Alan, uh, just worked with Alan for about a month before he went to America. But she was there on the day Churchill visited. So in the film we see... Hugh Alexander. Um, by that point, Hugh Alexander takes over from Alan as head of her tape. The whole struggle between Hugh and Alan is completely made up. So Churchill just basically was turning up to say, oh, well done, everyone, you know, and spent the morning there and went round and saw the heads of the huts and then stands on a stone outside the mansion and, and gives an exaltation, as Arthur Bonsall told me when I interviewed him. What, what, what did Churchill say? Oh, he just sort of, oh, well done, and carry on with the good work. And off he went. In the weeks after that, Gordon Welshman decides, he kind of realised that Bletchley was going to have to be a factory. It wasn't going to be this cottage industry, it was going to be this co-breaking factory. And later in the war, Gordon Welshman kind of takes over the machine side of things. So he decides we need more money and we need more help with this, we need more staff. So the letter, although signed by Turing, it's signed by Turing, Welshman, Alexander, and the chap who's never mentioned in the film, Stuart Milner Barry. It's just a letter basically thanking him for his visit. And then well, let's tag something on the end of it. So it starts with some weeks ago, you paid us the honour of a visit, and we believe that you regard our work as important. You will have seen that thanks largely to the energy and foresight of Commander Travis, he's taken over from Deniston at this point, 
we've been well supplied with the bombs for breaking the German enigma. We think, however, that you ought to know that this work is being held up and in some cases is not being done at all, principally because we cannot get sufficient staff to deal with it. And it then just gets really quite boring and they talk about a bunch of wrens they need to take on and, and clerical staff and, and this sort of thing. And then um, because he's the youngest, Stuart Milner Barry is given the job of going down to London and hand-delivering the letter to Number 10 Downing Street. And then the rest of it is true. So that, you know, whenever he reads the letter, Churchill then says to his mate, right, action this day, give them everything they require and let me know that it's been done. Yeah, it sounds like the movie changed a few things there then. Yeah, but I can see why they did it. it again, it's, it's to help with the storytelling in a more simplified way because you've only got 90 minutes to tell a story that is six years in making, isn't it? That's true. The next point to clarify from the original episode has to do with the different Enigma machines in use by the Germans. In the episode, I mentioned the British were able to crack the Enigma machines used by the German Army and Air Force first because they used three rotors. But then I mentioned the German Navy used four rotors, which made it more difficult to crack. Can you give us a little bit more clarification around the different Enigma machines? There were different machines used by different branches of the military, correct? Till later in the war, they all used a three-rotor machine. So it's only 1942 that the Navy bring in the M4 machine, the four-rotor machine. What is different is the procedures around the security for the Enigma. So the German Navy was always more security conscious. Uh, their procedures were more set in stone. Anything that kind of relies on human input, you've got a point of error there. So after they've gone through the setup each day, one of the things they're asked to do is select these random letters to send as their first part of the message to the other end. And they're supposed to think of a random set of letters, and humans aren't good at random. So a lot of the ladies I've spoken to, a lot of the veterans, speak about how many German swear words they got to learn. <laughs> because they would use a German swear word. You know, it was, and it's, it's things like that. So you know, there's a lot of myth around us having to have an Enigma machine physically to break the code. Once you know how the machine works, you don't need the machine. What's really handy is having those code books, is having those books with the daily settings in. They knew these as pinches, so they'd go and they'd pinch something. So they were looking to capture U-boats, things like that. I was lucky enough a couple of years ago to interview a guy called Arnold Hargreaves, who actually was on a boarding party, who boarded the U-110. They'd brought the U-boat to the surface. The captain had set the scuttling charges and the German crew dive off the boat. They then realise the charges haven't gone off, uh, at which point we get HMS Bulldog, the ship they were on, between the German sailors and the U-boat. So they can't, at this point, see what's going on on the other side of the ship because we can't let them know that we're going to board it. And the boarding party sail a little rowboat over and they're basically told anything that isn't nailed down, put in a bag. And they came back and they just had canvas sacks full of everything. They put the German prisoners away in another part of the ship and the officers came along and they emptied all these canvas sacks on the deck. And the officers went through and said, right, we're having that, we'll have that, we'll have that. Right, crew, help yourselves to the rest. They had everything, false teeth. Arnold had one of the officers' caps. He had a dagger and he had a signalling lamp. But they all just helped themselves. What was taken by the officers was the Enigma machine, but more importantly, the code books. 
and then they would be rushed back to Britain, and then they'd be down. You know, a courier would, motorcycle rider would bring those down to Bletchley, and then there'd be a excitement at Bletchley. The, the lady I spoke about earlier who worked with um, Hugh Alexander, she talks about you know pinches arriving. She wasn't directly involved with it. She wasn't allowed to see them because they were taken off to a room at the end of the hut. But, you know, everyone would be, oh, oh right. You know, because they knew that they'd have the next month, they wouldn't have any problems for the next month. They could just literally go, right, we'll set up our Typex machine like this, and they're reading it direct. Huh. Just have the answers right there. It's the answer key. <laughs> yeah, you know, someone's just giving you the key to the password. So it's just giving you someone's password file, you know. Basically, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you talked about this briefly earlier, but in the original episode, I mentioned that Alan Turing traveled to the United States soon after the U.S. joined World War II in December of 1941, but the cooperation actually started before that, didn't it? Yes, yes. It's um, in February 1941, four members of the American intelligence service, shall we say, sailed over to Britain. They brought with them what you had built. So America's biggest code-breaking work was obviously done against the Japanese. So you'd kind of built a machine to break the purple code, purple machine that the Japanese used, which is another encryption device. And you brought your version of that for us to have. It was so big they couldn't fit it on a train, and it had to be brought down by ship. So as they sailed down the east coast of Britain, in the middle of February, which isn't good weather in the North Sea. They're also attacked by German planes. So they kind of got a bit of a rude awakening to World War II, these four Americans. And they turn up at Bletchley at about 10 o'clock at night and they're given a glass of sherry in Commander Denison's office. And that is the actual point that the special relationship between our two nations begins because that's the first sharing of intelligence because we basically tell you everything we know about Enigma at that point. And that's when it starts. And during the war, there were two groups of Americans who were working at Bletchley Park. There was, a, I think, I'm exactly, I think, between four or 500 Americans working at Bletchley Park during World War II. Oh, wow. Were there people from Bletchley Park that went to the U.S. then in kind of the opposite way? Or? There were a few, um, not as many. Alan goes, as you said in your original episode, you're right about that. Alan goes to America. He initially helped with the design of the American bombs. And then I think you said about him working on a, a speech encryption device, didn't you? Um, which is right. Again, one of the funnier sides is that we believe the office he was working in at one period in New York was overlooking Radio City. So the Radio City dancers are the Rockettes, aren't they? So there's another myth that the machine that the British design after Typex is called Rock-X, and then that's where this name comes from. But I think we'll take that with a large pinch of salt, I think. <laughs> yeah, Alan works in America for, I think, I think over a year on different projects, um, and then comes back to Britain, I believe, in 43, I think. Okay. Now, something else I said in the original episode was around the secrecy of Bletchley Park after World War II. And I mentioned a book called The Ultra Secret that was published by an officer of the Royal Air Force that started turning the attention to what went on there. But again, the truth is a little more complex than that. Can you clarify that a little bit for us? As far as everyone who served at Bletchley Park was concerned, the day they leave Bletchley Park, they convinced that this will never be, no one will ever know what they've done. 
every person who arrives at Bletchley Park, the first thing they do is sign the Official Secrets Act. In the late 1960s, the guy who'd been the head of the French co-baking bureau, Bertrand, publishes a book. And in that book, he talks about Enigma being broken. And that's really the first time it's done. I believe some of the polls had written something about, had had something published around the same time. But of course, because they're behind the Iron Curtain, no one knows about that until the late 1990s. But um, it was kind of a, with people in the know, you know, journalists and the such, people knew there was something about some code breaking that was done during World War II. But then in 74, the British government decided, right, we're going to release stuff about it. Now, whether that was because it no longer mattered, you know, we know that some countries were carrying on using Enigma post-World War II for a while. For example, the East German police were using it. Now, whether by then we knew that no one else was using it, so it didn't matter, we'll never know why it was released. But they decided to release it. Now, whether Winterbottom's book was kind of semi-official, whether that was the government's way of going, we'll let him write that book and we'll work with him and it'll be done. We don't know. He did have quite a senior position during the war at Bletchley Park, so he was a Air Force liaison officer. So he was kind of the link between the intelligence being produced at Bletchley and what is told to the Air Force and what information is passed on to them. So we did kind of know a fair bit. But also, I would probably say that just about 99% of the myths that are built up around Bletchley Park can be pinpointed back to that book being released. Probably the very biggest, most people will know, is in that book, Winterbottom says that before Coventry is bombed, and Coventry's a city in the Midlands in Britain, and it was bombed on the 1st of November 1940, and there was a huge loss of life, and, and the city centre was absolutely destroyed. In the book, Winterbottom says that Enigma had been broken, and they knew it was Coventry, but so to safeguard the secret of Enigma being broken, Winston Churchill decides not to warn anyone. And it's completely untrue. At that point, they couldn't guarantee breaking Enigma every day, for a start. And also, there was never a message that said, tonight we bombed Coventry. The bigger reason that Coventry was bombed, because by this stage, the Germans from quite early stage have been using a system called Knickerbein, which is a beam, which they broadcast from Germany, two beams. And it's kind of like a directional aid for the bombers. And they fly along the beam. And where the two beams intersect is where they drop the bombs. We'd discovered this, and British scientists had worked out a way they could... It wasn't jamming, but because it, ba- it was based on something which was a, it was like a blind lang- landing device that was commercially available. You know, airlines use this. And as you flew into an airport in bad weather... One side sent out dots and the other side sent out dashes. But in the middle, you just got a constant tone because where the dashes weren't, the dots filled in. So when you were on this tone, you knew that was the the right line. And it was based on that originally. And we found that we could bend the beam because what they could do is add extra dots or extra dashes. I don't know which one it was. And that would put the Germans slightly off target. But on the day of Coventry being bombed, the nearest they could get it to was it was going to be one of four places that was going to be bombed. And that wasn't through Enigma. That was actually through the people working on the beam stuff. 
And I interviewed Sir Arthur Bonsall, who later in the 1970s actually became the head of GCHQ. And he was working in the, the Air Force section for Bletchley Park when Coventry was bombed. And he said the most we could say is there were hints, but no more than that. What they were working on, you know, like I say, there wasn't a message that said Coventry's going to be bombed tonight. I think that's the biggest problem that Winterbottom's book gave Bletchley, which still, the story comes up nearly every November, you know, some 74 years later now. Sorry, 79 years later now. It still comes up every year. Hmm. Well, I mean, if that was one of the first things that came out about it, then people might just assume that, okay, this is the original source, and so it must be fact. One veteran I interviewed about Winterbottom's book, because one of the questions quite often asked is, you know, when the book came out, what do you think? And one lady I interviewed literally turned around to me and went, he should have been hung. Oh, wow. So just not, didn't stop. Just she, was, she thought he was a traitor. Not a, not a fan. <laughs> well, going back to the original episode, the final point there was uh, when I mentioned Winston Churchill's credit of Turing as having the single biggest contribution to Allied victory in the war against Nazi Germany. Uh, but that's not necessarily true, is it? We don't know where that's come from at all. We don't know where that quote's come from at all. We, we can't find it. Also, the, the, there's quite a famous one about Churchill saying that Bletchley Park were his golden geese that never cackled. We're struggling to find that as well. Like I said before, when Bletchley first started being known and the original trust set up the museum, there were still a lot of these myths out there. and. The story had been slightly embellished um, to make it more interesting. But what we try to do now, you know, and as I've done with this, you know, I've made sure that everything you've wanted to know, I've gone to our historian just to double check if I don't know it. And even stuff I'm absolutely positive about, which it turns out one thing I wasn't, I was wrong. But that's what we want to do now. We don't ever want anyone to come back to us and say, you're wrong about that. And we get it. We, we do episodes of the podcast and we have people say, oh, I think you'll find that blah, 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 blah. And David ends up saying, no, I'll direct you at this document that's held in the National Archive where it says this. And we want to be 100% accurate about everything we say about Bletchley Park. Because it's important. The museum's role and its core role is to tell the story of the people who served at Bletchley Park between 1939 and 1945. And if we don't tell the truth, we're doing those people a disservice. Makes sense. There was one question I had that about the, the movie I, w I wanted to ask real quick. And that is a line where the movie mentions that breaking Enigma shortened the war by at least two years and saved over 14 million lives. I have no idea how you would come up with numbers like that. <laughs> but I'm just curious, is there any truth to that? I can see how this has happened. So what happens in July 1945, Eisenhower writes to Menzies, and this letter, our previous chairman of the trust was Sir John Scarlett, who was the head of MI6 for a period. And while he was in office, behind his desk, he had the copy of this letter. So that's when we found out about it, only a few years ago. And we actually had it on display at Bletchley for a few years. In the letter, Eisenhower says, and I'll quote this, 
The intelligence which has emanated from you before and during this campaign has been of priceless value to me. It has simplified my task as a commander enormously. It has saved thousands of British and American lives and in no small way has contributed to the speed with which the enemy was routed and eventually forced to surrender. Now, we think it's come out of some post... Winsbottom's book basically broke the, the flood banks and lots of memoirs came out. Now, with the way Bletchley was organised, very compartmentalised, you, you would have to have been very, very senior to have known the whole story. So a lot of the people who are telling the stories post-war, one, they're doing it from 40 years' memory, and two, they're doing it from 40 years' memory of not knowing the whole story. So that has to be taken into account first. Some of those original memoirs, in at least one, someone decides that they shorten the war by two years. Another one decides they shorten the war by one year. You know, they all kind of, you know, when they're obviously pitching to their publishers, you know, well, what's, what's this, this? Well, it's very secret. Well, what did it do? Oh, you know, you've got to have a headline, haven't you? It's basically come from that. It's come from the knowledge that Eisenhower has in that kind of alluded to the war being shortened and the saving of lives. And then I think people have subsequently said, well, okay, then if Bletchley Park saved, shortened the war by two years and we say on average there was 10 million people dying a year during the war, oh, that means they saved 20 million lives. And there's no way of saying how long Bletchley Park didn't shorten the war. It helped fundamentally, but we, we would never be able to say how much you shorten the war by. Yeah, it's, it's a what if, you never know. We don't know. We will never know. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about the imitation game. Not only, I've also taken the time to fact check that original episode. It's going above and beyond to help tell the true story. I know there's a lot we covered, but there's so much more that we couldn't cover in a single episode. And so that leads us right into your podcast, the official Bletchley Park podcast. Can you share a little bit more about that and where people can find it? Well, you can find it everywhere. So all you need to do is search for Bletchley Park podcast, wherever people listen to their podcasts, basically. So we've been running for just over seven years now. I first became involved with with Bletchley because I was actually involved with the, the Alan Turing Committee. So when... It was coming up to Alan's centenary, which was, was 2012. From 2010 onwards, we were organising different events around the country and, and building up for 2012, basically. And as those events became more regular to, in 2012, you know, a lot of them was based, were based at Bletchley Park for obvious reasons. So I was there a lot, and I just fell in love with the place. I'd been a few years before once, and it was a nice museum, but it was quite kitschy. Uh, it was very amateurish. But that was because the trust had no money. You know, the people who were running it, just no money whatsoever. They were literally having meetings on, you know, a Monday morning to see if they'd be open the next week. You know, that, that things were so difficult. The trust were very lucky in gaining a grant from the National Lottery. It means that you, when you got one of these heritage lottery grants, you have to match the funding as well. So they, they did an awful lot of fundraising. But that has just transformed the place that you wouldn't believe it was the same place. It's now a museum of international renown. It's you know a, a world heritage site, really. 
and just so professional, you know, to the extent that, you know, like we say, you know, we want to be every single written word, every piece of video, every piece of audio that's officially connected to Bletchley Park, we want to make sure is right. We don't ever want anyone to say to us, you are wrong about that. Things do come out, you know, some of these things that we've spoken about today. If we'd spoken about this five years ago, we wouldn't have known this. More things are discovered in the archives. Because when, you know, when people say, oh, you know, the National Archives have released a whole tranche of new documents, someone has to go through that stuff. And there might be 45,000 pages of documents. And there might be one page that has some really fundamental thing we don't know. But someone's still got to read that page to get to it. Someone's got to go through it all just to find that one page. Yeah, wow. I say this all the time. I learn something new every time I go. You know, I'm at Bletchley a number of times every month. It's only sort of 20 minutes down the road from where I live. And um, every time there's something new. Where we record is actually in David, the historian's office, when we do our documentaries. And they work in the same section as the archive. And you just walk through the archive and just go, what's laying around that's being digitised at the moment, you know? And you learn something every single time. It's amazing. And I just love doing the podcast. It's nice especially to be able to interview the veterans and to allow these people after so long to be able to tell their stories. You know, you try and explain to them what a podcast is and it's like a radio show on the internet. And, oh, right, okay. And you tell them it's being listened to all around the world by tens of thousands of people. Really? Oh, okay. And then they just, they buck up because in a lot of cases, no one's ever bothered asking them. I would safely say, and it's really strange. I've never heard one Bletchley Park veteran brag about what they did. They all say at some point in one way or another, oh, what I did wasn't important because they were just this tiny cog. And you have to say to them, no, it was. It was important. And that even goes for, example, the lady I mentioned earlier that worked in the hut with Turing. As the conversation went on and she's describing what she's doing, I'm realising she wasn't a member of clerical staff. She was fundamentally a code breaker. So this isn't just me saying to a lady who thought she had a boring typing job, no, you did do something important. This is someone who even as an actual code breaker thought she didn't do anything important. And to explain to these people, I mean, that lady, she'd come all the way from Tasmania for our reunion. We have an annual reunion for the veterans. And her two sons were with her. And one of her sons was your quintessential Aussie, rugby-playing, big bloke, muscly bloke. And I turned around partway through the interview, and I like to try and involve the family, if they're there, to ask him how he felt about this. And he couldn't speak. He had tears just streaming down his face because his mum had never told him this. And you can't buy that. You know, the the pride that they've now got in their mum and the fact that she's been able to tell her story, you know, that, that to me is just, that makes all of this worthwhile. Wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, I'll make sure to include a link to that in the show notes for this, of course. Thanks again so much for your time. No, Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, like I said, what convinced me to do this was just the quality of the show that you're producing and, and the engaging nature of it because I, I just think it's brilliant i appreciate it i appreciate that especially going back to episode number three as i mentioned before that was a uh, it was one that 
as any podcaster knows, those early episodes, you never know. <laughs> I, we, we, the listeners don't know this, but we had a, a conversation via email where I said you were very brave because I can't go back and listen to anything before about episode 20 <laughs> of even of Bletchley. Well, there's a reason why The Imitation Game was episode number three. It was one that was very early in my list, of obviously, of something that I wanted to cover because I love the movie. I love the the history behind it. And I, it was, I mean, it's just fun to dig into the history and try to find the true story. So I, I do appreciate correcting a lot of that. And I learned a ton through our conversations and just uh, it's it's fascinating, and it it does it it melts my mind trying to think about <laughs> all of the just pure genius that was there. You know, for example, another genius at Bletchley Park is Bill Tut, who basically had never seen the Lorentz machine, spent three months with a pencil and paper, and worked out how this machine that had twelve rotors in it worked. It's when you realise that these you realise that. There is such a gap between yourself and these people <laughs> that you could never even start to bridge. Yes. Yeah, it's just, okay, that's that's how that works. I will take your word for it because obviously I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. Thanks again to Mark Cotton and the team at Bletchley Park for sharing their time and knowledge and allowing this episode to exist. With a story like we've covered today, there's so many more details we couldn't hope to cover in a single episode. So if you want to dive deeper, pull open the app you're using to listen to this right now and do a search for the Bletchley Park podcast and then hit the subscribe button. They've got some amazing content that Mark and the Bletchley Park team are putting together Now, if you're driving, of course, don't pull out your phone. I'll make sure to include a link to the Bletchley Park podcast in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the page for this episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the entire day's work was lost as soon as the clock struck midnight. Number two, the bomb machines that Alan Turing helped build at Bletchley Park were not computers. Number three, possessing the Enigma machine itself was not as important as the codebooks. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number three. That is true. As Mark explained, the Enigma machine was commercially available prior to the war. Of course, there were changes made to it by the Germans, but... The machine itself wasn't as important to the codebreakers at Bletchley Park as the codebooks that told the operators what codes to use on the Enigma machine. That brings us to number two. That is also true. Even though Alan Turing is considered the godfather of modern computing, as Mark pointed out, the bombs, or the machines that they used at Bletchley to help decrypt the Enigma codes, were not computers. That means the lie is... Number one, even though the movie depicts Benedict Cumberbatch's version of Alan Turing getting upset when they fail to break the code by midnight because that means all their work is lost, as Mark explained, that is not true. After all, even if they decrypted a message days later, it still might give some crucial clue as to the location of an enemy unit. And that brings us to an end of this episode. 
I'd like to thank Mark Cotton once again for coming on the show. I learned a ton. And I really hope that you did too. Now, before we go, there is one last thing I like to do here on the podcast, and that is to share these stats for each episode. I'm a big fan of being as open as possible, and I don't hear a lot of podcasts sharing what it took to create each episode. So I figure if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating a podcast like mine, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all of the podcasts you listen to for free just a little more. With that said, here are the final stats for the creation of this episode. Today's episode took a total of 24 hours to create and cost, well, nothing in out-of-pocket expenses. I got lucky with the expenses on this one because I had already covered the imitation game, so I already owned a copy of the movie and some of the research materials that I used for that episode, so the major expense on my end for this episode was time. Now, as I always do, I want to reiterate that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. That does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about, nor does it include any of my ongoing costs. For example, the monthly podcast and website hosting costs. It also does not account for any of the time outside of writing, researching, and producing this one single episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the website and things like that is not included in that time. Don't forget, you can help keep Based on a True Story ad-free and independent by supporting the podcast over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. As a way of saying thank you, you'll get access to hours of exclusive bonus content on the producer's feed. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to the story, hop on to the Based on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter, where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, that's D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Now, if you're not able to support the show monetarily, that's no problem. I'm so happy that you've given me some of your precious time. I hope you've enjoyed this time together as much as I have. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>